Hello and welcome to the Sellerman Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. This time uh, we're leaving the UK again and going to Massachusetts in uh, North America, USA, um, speaking to Carlos Yescas. I've actually spoken to Carlos before um, on a different podcast uh, for the Guild of Fine Food, Fine Food Podcast. Check it out. Carlos is on there. We had a chat in Bergamo at the World Cheese Awards. Um, so that's a good introduction to who Carlos is and where his main areas of interest lie. He's a former diplomat for the UN uh, turned cheesemonger and uh, he, he speaks really deeply and fascinatingly about the real kind of socioeconomic impacts of what we're seeing and how it may change uh, uh, the way we shop and how we interact with supermarkets and producers. Uh, it's a longer po- podcast this uh, and I hope really interesting, certainly quite in depth. Um, but anyway, here he is, Carlos Yescas. This is my busiest time of the year normally, you know, when we start planning uh, all the events and getting in contact with everyone. And so it just, um, we had our first event thought for March 18, which was going to be a, a sort of a media party cheese tasting at Italy. And so I had been talking to a lot of cheesemakers to send us cheese for this cheese tasting. And you know, that was for almost four weeks now. And so, or five weeks, um, and we had to cancel it. And so, because I had been talking to all these cheesemakers about, um, about you know, the, that event, I started hearing from them really fast. In the, and the first thing that I, we, we sort of got was the sort of the hoarding uh, that was going on, uh, right? And a lot of the well, a lot of what people were reporting is that uh, actually sales were going up in some stores and some supermarkets for cheese, but it was all commodity cheese. Mm. And so that that uh, they felt the pressure from the supermarkets to either lower prices. Uh, or uh, that their cheeses were not moving as fast. Uh, and then, the, so I started talking to them and I, that was really interesting. And you know, just in this sort of dual role that I play of you know, being the director of the coalition, but then also having my own business in Mexico, um, I, you know, talking to my sister and, and sort of like trying to figure out what was happening. Um, we, she said, something is going to happen and we don't understand what. And uh, so that was Memorial Day. It was a, it was a holiday here. Uh, but it happened to coincide that that Monday uh, was a big mobilization in Mexico where women didn't go out to the streets and didn't participate in the economy to protest violence against women. And so in the sort of lead up to that, uh, the, the weekend before, it was supposed to be a big, um, you know, spending, um, spending week, long weekend because it was just a holiday. And then it was going to be this Monday of no, of no, no action. And so it, it, something started to look very strange because we started to get no new orders. And then on that Tuesday, uh, what, we, what we heard, uh, I mean, we heard from most of our of our restaurant partners uh, that they were canceling all for all 
purchases for that week and all future purchases for the for the rest of the of the foreseeable future. And so we lost ninety five percent of our business in three days. Uh, and as you can imagine, we were with warehouses full of cheese. Uh, and most of this cheese was fresh cheese uh, because you know, the season is, is warmer in Mexico. So, so my sister and I sort of like went into crazy mode, panic mode to try to, to take out this cheese to do something with it. And so my sister transformed our business in, in a matter of hours really into a home delivery service. Uh, which is something we had done in the past a long time ago, but it wasn't something that we were doing anymore. And anyway, so she was uh, she started doing that, and and sort of my role became talking to the cheesemakers um, because she was taking all that cheese, but then talking to the cheesemakers in 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 that we buy from to to tell them two things. One, uh, you need to stop making fresh cheese right now because we're not going to be able to sell it. Uh, you need to be transforming into making um, eight cheeses, something that you know, at least you can keep for you know, uh, maybe a month. So in a month, we can see what is happening. And then the, the second message was, you need to come up with a sort of present of the cheeses, of the fresh cheeses that you have, presentations that are smaller, uh, instead of your know, pieces that are um you know a kilo or uh that are or, or you know even for some food service kind of thing that are five kilos you really need to transform uh for something that will be easy to sell at 250 grams because that's the uh, the maximum amount that we were seeing that people that's a domestic sale effectively we're, we're seeing exactly the same pattern here that cheesemakers are, are selling out rapidly of their smaller individual cheeses the sort of you know up to 250 gram cheeses but they are you know swamped with one kilo plus so that sort of gave me that sort of sense of like these these were the first things that were going to be hit producers that were making fresh cheeses and will not be able to transform to a cheeses just because they don't have recipes or or their or their milk or their production was not allowing, or they don't have you know finishing spaces to age. And then the second one was that something was happening in 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 size. And so I went back then talking to my to some of my members uh, here in the United States and abroad, um, and trying to figure out. And and what I started hearing from the distributors is that. The supermarkets were willing to take sort of artisan cheeses, but if they were pre-cut, perfect sizes, mm -hmm. uh, because that's something that is easy to put in, you know, uh, 300 gram or 100 gram or whatever, that is that is scannable, right? Was what they wanted because that's easy to put in a system, because the first people that went that that had to be laid off. Uh, at the supermarket level where the the people behind the deli counter right the ones that were mm -hmm. doing the tasting and the cutting of the cheese and so those wheels of a kilo or you know 10 kilo pieces uh there's no one to cut them and so they cannot put they cannot sell that right so that 
that sort of trickle back to the producers, the producers started hearing, and soon producers have gotten to the point that they are cutting the cheeses themselves and sending it to stores already pre-cut and pre-weighted, uh, trying to have perfect, perfect pieces of your know, of perfect grams. Um, and so, you know, we started talking uh, with, with uh, you know, Whole Foods and, you know, all the other sort of biggest retailers. And they were like, the only way that we're going to be able to do this is if we put all of these things on, um, I don't know if you have it, but it's, it's something called Instacart, which is something like, Amazon Direct, you know, that you can buy your groceries. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's yeah, there's there's various different options that that, that work like that. I mean, uh, yeah, that's the only way. Really, the food is getting out here. I guess in many ways, people are going to the supermarket, but any sort of online sale, you know, is is the way people are going really for obvious reasons. But presumably, there the weights have to be exact to the gram, otherwise they're not saleable. Right, and the and the you know the the sort of gig worker, you know the the person that is going and buying it and picking it off the shelf, you know they they want to, you know they're afraid they also don't want to be in the stores, they don't want to be outside, and so they don't they're not going to spend a bunch of time looking at at sizes that are, uh, you know, they, oh they ask for two hundred and fifty. Let me see if I find one that is closer to two hundred and fifty grams, right? Mm. Like they want something that. That's why commodity cheeses were able to be sold so much faster because they are uh, always pre-cut and perfectly wrapped um, in in perfect grams. Right? But that presents a, a big challenge for cheeses that are, um, and this is a term of the industry. It's not my term, but the term of the industry is dirty cheeses. So if you think something like a brie or something like a like a gorgonzola, mm -hmm. uh, when you cut them, uh, you need to clean that machine between every piece to avoid contamination between batches and between pieces. So they're called dirty cheeses because they dirty the machine. So it's really expensive. And so the, the companies that do, you know, because there's companies that will slice, you know, your, your, your Lego ham or sure. you know, you, will slice your cheese blocks. Yeah. These companies are not taking those cheeses because, yeah. they're, because they don't want, they, they don't have the labor capacity uh, to be cleaning and, and to be cutting that. So it has returned to the, to the, to the, to the producer themselves to be cutting this. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, so that's, so that was really interesting to first hear. And then, um, and then try, so in my role of the coalition was trying to convey this information that, you know, I end up with, and then it's great that I have it, but you know, this is, is, is pointless if I don't share it. And so I went and turned around and told the producers in Spain and Italy and France, you know, the ones that are my members, that this was happening uh, on this side of the, the thing. And I think the response has been, it really depends on what country we're talking about. Um, some producers, uh, specifically the Italians and the and the Spanish, because the health situation is so bad, they have scaled down um, production. 
And that scaling down of production has meant that there's less cheese going out of plants. And so we're, we're expecting to see uh, in May a huge decline of European cheeses in the United States. And then, you know, cheeses from England and France, um, which you know, because it took so long for those for the situation for the health situation to actually become a reality there, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of production still. Uh, uh, we don't expect it to see also because some of those cheeses are, you know, some of the little French cheeses are actually perfectly weighted and you know already mm -hmm. gram and everything. So, we, but we then now the question is the uh, cheese on boats for French. Uh, the uh, uh, because as you know most of these produ products come to New York and the ports in New York um, are experiencing a labor shortage because there's no um, you know people are sick too mm. uh, and so we have now all these bottlenecks right like the bottlenecks are at the port of entry then the bottleneck is again at the store and then the distributors and so there's like the product exists and the and the supply chain exists but now the supply chain is not as uh, efficient because there's less people working and then what we are seeing from the, the british cheeses is that so many of them rely on um sort of tasting in store because mm -hmm. uh, you know people are not necessarily used to a stilton or they're not used to used to a you know something like a shasher because and so what happens is that because there's no tasting they're not being sold and so they're the bottleneck is in another part so it, it is it is in so it's really challenging to now think how we're going to be selling cheese for the next maybe three, four months. Uh, because there's, you know, product that is sitting there that is going bad that, you know, some of the stores are going to want to sell because they already prepay for it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, some of the producers are trying to send more out. And so I think one of the interesting things that is happening, for example, in Spain is uh, uh, a couple of the, the the very artisan, small, but really high-end cheeses like Reisilo and Moncedillo, because their cheeses are so fragile, right? Like at, at five weeks, they're ready to go. And if you don't eat them by eight, by week eight, they're going to be bad. The, instead of dumping them on the ground uh, to the landfill, they're giving it they're donating it to food pantries and to healthcare workers in Spain. Um, and, and I think that's going to start happening to other, to, in other uh, plant parts of the, of the world. Um, but then who absorbs that loss? And that's a, an economic question that no one has ever sort of thought about. Um, and then the, the other part is that some producers are sacrificing their animals that produce milk. Because you don't want an animal producing milk that you're not gonna be able to use. Um, so either you sacrifice it and 
your usage for meat, uh, or you have a animal there that is still eating, and if you don't have you know food to feed it, you know is not of is not of the same quality that you're always using, but it's also still producing milk, and then you don't know what to do. The, now the problem of killing your animals is that you're disturbing your herd, and then in you know a couple of months when they when you know hopefully some of this goes back to normal it's not as easy to build again mm -hmm. a a um a herd back i know the story yesterday i read as sort of dairy farmers you know put just just pouring away thousands of liters of milk just just opening the taps essentially which i guess is you know, the other end of that, either you sacrifice the animal or you sacrifice the milk. I suppose it's less disruptive to the herd, but, it, you know, bottom line, it's an incredible waste, both in in food and, you know, nutrition, but in money as well. I mean, what, what, are, what are the kind of, are there any sort of governmental safeguards, you know, for producers? Is there any financial support for, for these for these issues that people are facing? I mean, I think it's really a patchwork at the moment. Um, there is you know, some supplemental assistance for farms uh, that are in the form of loans. Mm -hmm. And so it's unclear if people want to take on a loan right now when their future is not clear. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, most of these loans are not for production, but are actually for employment. And so it's to, like, help you pay for your employee. But you know some of these farms that you know rely on family labor, um, you know there's it's not clear how those things apply, and that's our, that's in sort of robust economies like France and Italy and England and the United States, and you know everyone is sort of responding in different ways, and you know there's a lot of focus right now on the on the on the supply chain working and the supply chain. Because there's the demand. See, the, the problem is that it's not a moment that we don't have demand. We still have demand, and probably the same amount of demand, if not more. But there's, it's difficult to get it out the door and through all these channels to get it to the people. But that's interesting that you say that there is demand, because certainly the experience that I'm seeing here is that the usual markets that cheesemakers here sell into, or certainly the cheesemakers I work with, disappeared effectively overnight you know that that food service hospitality wholesale market just went away um you know leaving a lot of cheesemakers with stacks of 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 cheese and and obviously they they need to sell that cheese particularly the soft cheesemakers they need to sell it rapidly um and that they are discovering new markets you know they are much like your sister turned your business into a home delivery system you know in in the space for hours it's amazing what adrenaline will do to focus the mind um but uh you know people are now seeing their e-sales grow massively not not to a degree that balances out the wholesale sales but actually to make survival a viable option so I guess what you're saying, you know, that the demand is there, but it's shifted in a sense as to where that demand is coming from. Right. And and then, you know, one of the problems with this shift in demand is that it's kind of piecemeal, right? Like, like I'm ordering cheese as much as I can and, you know, as, as, as but it, it is different to your know, pack a bag or a box that, you know, of 80, $80 
to send to Carlos in Boston and then another box of $80 to send to John in you know, San Francisco, as opposed to what was happening before, which was like the cheesemaker could just give, you know, I don't know, a thousand pounds of cheese to a distributor that then will sell it into the restaurants, right? So yes, yes, it is replacing some part, but the logistics is also, mm. the logistics are so much more complicated. Um, you need someone in your in your facility that is a full time uh, person for fulfillment of orders. And that's a, uh, that's a that's a piece of labor that we had not been considering. And then what we're starting to see in the more remote areas of the United States where the cheesemakers are is that FedEx and UPS and you know, all these services are not arriving as as um, as often mm. uh, because you know they also have less employees uh, they're more worried and so there's all these announcements you know UPS is hiring this many more workers but you know I now even and, and you know how Facebook is is in in very specific ways I, I start seeing on my own Facebook uh, you know your your truck our name so from fedex so basically fedex now telling people if you have your own truck we will uh, you know we will hire your truck <laughs> yeah because they're trying i mean there are some businesses that are doing very well out of this situation you know dis- distribution being one of them you know um so that's yeah so that's that's i guess those are the issues that we're facing now. I think what I'm finding really both, both you know, challenging about this, but also interesting is that the, the situation we find ourselves in and our solutions are very reactive. You know, it, it's happened in the space of what, let's say 30 days or something, you know, a very small space of time, realistically on our doorstep, certainly in the UK. So every decision is being made in a kind of fight or flight mode there's very little time to actually plan and you know uh, put in systems and things like that so uh, you know you can only imagine that things are not being done in the most efficient of ways so you know logistics will not be being done as well as they can and you know sourcing will not be as effective as it could be but do you think that through all this kind of that you know almost chaos that we're living in at the moment there are lessons to be learned that will be beneficial, you know, because I just keep saying as much to myself as anyone else, you know, there was a before and there'll be an after. Do you think we're learning lessons now that we'll carry forward? I mean, I think that the retail sector has changed completely forever. Like we would never go back to what we had. Not only because um, we had already seen trends of, of uh, your know, online shopping uh, replacing some of the traditional uh, ways of buying food mm-hmm. even before corona uh, but b- because we really don't understand this this virus uh, you know it's plateauing in some places it has stopped in china but you know, we don't know how long are we gonna be with this. There's no vaccination. There's no real treatment for it. You know, so we're gonna live with this for another three years before we can figure out how to actually all of us be outside in our regular lives. You know, all that. And so this is disrupting retail, and and it's also disrupting 
um, hospitality. And so some of those things will change. And uh, they, I think the trend to these sort of smaller, um, so, uh, smaller amounts of cheese in pieces that are um, more manageable for eggs had already been moving. Uh, and, and this is going to consolidate this. And this is what it's going to um, sort of force it. Um, I think there's going to be innovative solutions that um, are going to start coming out on packaging. Um, just because one of the things that is happening is that, you know, I was already reducing all my plastic and all my cardboard use and everything. And now I'm like forced to, again, accept all this plastic and all this cardboard. And as a consumer, I'm like, you know, trying to ask, you know, is there something else that you can send this in? Can you not send it in plastic? And you don't send it in cardboard? And of course, at the moment, it's not uh, viable because no one is paying attention to, to that side. But I think that some of, some of it has, is going to start coming with a solution. Uh, and so I think we're going to see things in packaging. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing is that um, we're going to uh, maybe start seeing in delivery, uh, uh, in, yeah, in delivery, um, a, and I don't know how this is for you, but one of the things we have noticed is that the big distributors of, of food that were previously only selling to restaurants are now selling direct. Yeah, exactly here as well. But yeah. By effectively, you know, going around a middleman. Right. So right now, a, like a, a warehouse could take on all of that and make the make this shop or make the, the small cell redundant. Because you just need a fulfillment center. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what is going to happen in, in, in some major markets. Uh, and what we have already known in, in the United States, uh, something something that people call here ghost kitchens. I don't know if you have heard of them. No. So ghost kitchens had started to appear with uh, the likes of Uber Eats and DoorDash, uh, which are, you know, sort of like home delivery of, of a takeout. And so these were restaurants that didn't actually exist, that you could not go to a storefront and be the restaurant, but you could see it, you could see the restaurant on your app and it was restaurants that uh, were inside of a warehouse and, you know, with all, you know, they were perfectly legitimate and everything, but they relied 100% on sales through apps. So these ghost um, restaurants and ghost supermarkets, which also exist in the Midwest, are not open to the public. They were a way to start responding to that fulfillment issue from the distrib from the from the from the big distributor side and from the big uh, producers, and all this data, why this started to appear is because all that data was available to the apps, and so some of the apps uh, like DoorDash or Grubhub or you know whatever all these ones, started opening these these restaurants themselves, but because they noticed that you know in area B there's no Chinese restaurant. Right? Like everyone that one, they were ordering for way too far away. So if you open a commissary that is making uh, Chinese food, 
but it's also making you know Indian food and everything, and it's all together. You just have it as different names for restaurants, mm. but it's all doing in a in a centralized kitchen that is a commissary that no one can enter, right? And you are only fulfilling orders. That was already a trend that was happening, and I think it will start happening with stores. Wow. I mean, I suppose the obvious example, the equivalent here as a frame of reference is is Ocado, which is a, an online supermarket. You order through the app and, you know, you get your entire grocery delivery, but you can't visit Ocado. It's just, you know, it's a series of vans and, and warehouses dotted across the country. I suppose the opportunity when I speak to producers that they're sort of seeing is they're going, gosh, there is actually a market online sales for my specific product. And although you know, logistically, it is a pain, perhaps it is worth employing that individual who deals with, you know, taking the orders and boxing them up and sending them out two or three times a week with, you know, DPD, UPS, whoever. Um, You know, maybe that's a way of, uh, you know, for for rural producers to sidestep, again, the middleman, the wholesaler, the, 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 the distributor, which in a way, you know, gives access to the consumer to a much wider range of things. And actually, I was speaking, well, thinking earlier about the idea of what local means as well. Obviously, we've always thought of local as a, you know, kind of a geographical term. But in a sense, if I buy cheese from a small scale cheese producer in a you know, rural place, say in Gloucestershire, I am supporting that specific locality because that cheese producer will have people in that area that work for them and they will need a delivery driver to get it to me. So although I'm here in London and my local cheese producer is in Tottenham, I can support local uh, by by buying from, you know, small areas in, in the country. And I think that's uh, a kind of a trend that we're seeing come out of this a little bit is this idea of 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 redefining what local means yeah no i agree with you a hundred percent i think this is a ref- definition and uh not only that but in, also in politics it's starting to look really strange uh to you that you're buying french cheese or that you're buying italian cheese if you're an american and so a lot of people are like now going to 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 first american cheeses i i and it's not as easy to go it's not like an order from Mons mm-hmm. here and then it gets delivered. I mean, they may figure out that they actually need a, an online presence here and that I can buy Mons cheeses. Uh, and so that's a, a, an interesting, I, I agree with you. I think it, 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 this is going to shift part of that local um, to, to, to us, to, to sort of the, the more savvy consumer at the lower level. I don't know how would that uh, look like, um, but it will definitely also also start moving and affecting. And and just on the on what you were saying about the the producer, you know, thinking of employing that that other person, uh, I think you are absolutely right. And I think that these producers are going to start seeing uh, that. Uh, so this is what happened with lactography. You know, we sell only cheese, and we have only always sell cheese. And uh, and the the people that were ordering in this new way of you know us delivering to their house were asking my sister, "Do you know um, where could I get you know tortillas, or do you know of a company?" Because it's an it's an issue of values, right? Like 
you're buying lactography cheese because you believe in the values that lactography has, which is small producer, women owned, you know, all these things. And so they were like um, asking. And so my sister sort of smartly said, I can sell you that too, because we have the context that have our values. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at a list now, it's half, half of it is cheese, but now we're selling corn products and we're selling um, honey and milk, uh, sorry, honey and, and coffee and beans, mm. and we're going to start selling rice, you know, things that are sort of... But it's those things, isn't it, when you get to the checkout at the supermarket and, the, you know, they, they rack all those items that you kind of walk past as you go to the checkout. It's almost like you've, you know, they've come to you for the cheese... But actually, they're going to leave with a loaf of bread or some milk. I mean, I know uh, Neil's Yard Dairy, one of their best selling things in the last few weeks has been their dairy box, which has some cheese in it. But it also has yogurt and milk and eggs and bread. And, you know, people are kind of it's almost adding value to a to the product that's already attractive in the first place, uh, you know, um, and kind of, yeah, sticking to values in terms of producers you want to work with. So you're buying into that. But offering a wider range of products that's definitely again that's but in a way that's a survival thing like it sounds like there was a demand there for that that your sister responded to but i know you know some some wholesalers are are actually almost spreading into becoming greengrocers as well because they know that you know fresh fruit and veg is not as easy to get hold of as it was so they're supplying that as a as a as an option and i think it's fascinating the way that people are reacting and responding so quickly and effectively like you know Neil's Yard are uh, definitely one that have done it really well yeah and you know I think that you know for example my it was interesting because I was you know you know me I was traveling a lot and so I was not and and I had to cancel so many things for my own business for lactography you know so I was not in the right mindset to think about food for us and so my husband, who who normally doesn't take care of food, and he's not the one that is doing that, he um, he's the one that got in charge of food uh, for the sort of the panic moment of buying everything because we're going to be in the house for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And and the first thing he did was to go to Amazon mm-hmm. and buy there, and then you know everything you know is he. He obviously understands all of this and, you know, and bought some things and other things I was like, we never ate this. This is not organic or, you know, and, and then it took me that sort of two weeks of like coming to terms with myself and everything. And then I was like, how do, how are we going to feed ourselves? Because I don't want to buy buying for these places. And so I went and looked for my uh, local CSA uh, and, and my farmer just had opened again the signos for the CSA and we're getting the delivery of a CSA of vegetables and fruit and flowers box tomorrow yeah. uh, that I had to prepay, you know, for the next, I don't know, 10 weeks uh, that they're delivering. And so, so it, it kind of, now that the sort of emergency passed, someone else is paying attention and this is i think happening to not is not to this my husband but to i think the emergency situation went and now all of us are starting to think okay where am i actually gonna get the food and the things that i have always wanted and then yesterday 
I, I emailed the, the, the person that sort of takes care of the CSA and I was like, do you sell eggs? Because, you know, there's no eggs to be bought anywhere. And, and, uh, and the response is like, yeah, we sell eggs, but, you know, it's too bad, but it's a little bit more complicated than I wanted it. Uh, but, you know, that's, again, if she had told me, oh, you know, for, you know, $100 more for the six weeks, we can also send you a six pack of eggs every, every week. I'll be like, perfect. Yeah. And is that sort of, I think that the cheesemakers that are far away, you know, they live with the farm, they live in their farms, but they not only make cheese, they have access to other products. If they start putting some of those other products, it will be more uh, interesting because I think people are going to start getting tired of buying just cheese for one producer. And the only thing that is going to make you come back to, to that producer is that they also had those other items. Um, and, 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 you know, if you're only making blue cheese, it's still done. Um, and you don't sell anything else. Well, how often am I going to go and buy Stilton? So much of what you're saying is very familiar. <laughs> you know, that there's, I mean, actually, I was speaking to uh, Andrea Power, who makes cheese in um, Barbados yesterday. Um, you know, and, and, and she's, you know, it's slightly different. They're, they're a bit behind, um, you know, in terms of the pandemic. But she you know, it's just saying the same things that you're saying, really, finding new ways to to sell to the customer, finding new ways to get her product out, finding new ways to add value to the overall offer, you know, and, and you're seeing that here. I, I think it's, um, I think another thing I'm hearing from people is this idea of opportunity. I think part of that is because we all have to look at the sort of positives of all of this experience. Otherwise, you know, you go mad in a sense. But, um, you know, that there is opportunity here to change the way that things are done uh, and, to, and to hold on to that afterwards. And I think, you know, certainly for the world that we we want to see for our cheesemakers, that's that's potentially a good thing, I think. And they, I, I, that's really encouraging uh, and then also really discouraging. And I'm going to tell you why. OK. Uh, in, in a lot of the conversations that I've been having, uh, and, and you know me, I'm a Marxist, uh, and, and there's nothing that I can do to help myself. Uh, that's what it is. <laughs> there's no but, uh, uh, but in my, in my sort of always thinking about this, I'm always worried about the divide. Um, because, you know, I know that me in my corner of the, of the string left, you know, I'm, you know, I'm eating well from local farmers. Uh, and, and I get sometimes worried that we create these silos of information mm -hmm. uh, and the other side doesn't exist there. And so uh, you probably know this website called Breibart because it's also big in, in the UK. It's a mouthpiece of the extreme right. Mm -hmm. And I read it every day, mm -hmm. almost every day. Um, I, I read it. And the reason why I read the extreme right is because I want to understand what is that they're thinking, right? What is that they're saying about Trump? What is that they're saying about, you know, they are the ones that keep, kept saying, uh, this is all a hoax, it's, 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 it's just like the flu, nothing is happening, right? And, and because they're the ones in power right now, is the ones that put us in jeopardy the most. Uh, and so in that reading, what I have noticed is that this conversation that you and I are having is not a conversation that exists on their side. Mm. And that worries me because we, the producer, 
doesn't care if you are liberal or conservative, they just want to sell their cheese. But if they only have half of the market, because we have not been able to communicate correctly to the other side, we are doing that in service to the cheesemaker. And that's the thing that I'm now getting worried about. So that was Carlos Yescas. Always good to hear from Carlos. Love chatting to him. Hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Um, if you want to know more about Carlos, go onto Instagram uh, at Carlos Yescas or have a look at his webpage, carlosyescas.com. Um, also, the two companies that he's involved with, Old Ways Cheese Coalition is at Old Ways Cheese on Instagram and also Lactography in, uh, in Mexico, which is at Lactography. Um, both really interesting, uh, important uh, people to follow uh, especially if you're into raw milk anyway see you next time for the salomon podcast the salomon podcast is produced by me sam wilkin if you want to know more about salomon go to salomon sam on instagram and twitter or check out the website salomon.co.uk 